You're listening to Homicide Worldwide. Your hosts, Sally and Keto, would like to remind our listeners the episodes deal with crimes that are graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Homicide Worldwide listeners. All of us over here at Homicide Worldwide Podcast would like to thank you for coming back each week. We see that you are spreading the word and that our body count is growing. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're kind of on Facebook. If you have an idea for an episode, send us an email to homicideworldwidepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join our moms in supporting the show, check out our Patreon. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen and please leave a five-star review. It really helps out the show. For source material, don't forget to check out the show notes. October and its long shadows. It is, hands down, my favorite time of year, with its brisk air, scary movies, and of course, gobbling up all things pumpkin. It just seems like the perfect time to talk about the things that are naturally creepy to humans. But mummies and monsters and ghosts and ghouls aren't on the docket tonight. Tonight it gets real. We are going to get into the aftermath of what happens to us and just how we decompose after we die. We are a complicated, hardwired species that is meant to be repulsed and mortified by anything post-mortem. But as humans so often are, we are also walking, talking, breathing contradictions who just can't help our morbid curiosity when it comes to the deathy things. That is, after all, why you sickos are here. In previous Homicide Worldwide originals, we've gone into some of the how when it comes to the many, many ways we might leave this Earth. From total body deceleration to peak mist, to dismemberment, the cause, if you will. But tonight, it's all about the effect. This is episode 43 of Homicide Worldwide. very, very happy to be here. And uh, I'm very, very jazzed about this episode. And I'm very happy to see you. Your I'm hair very... looks fly as hell, dude. Fly. Thank yeah. you. As does you. yours. I'm, thank you. I also too look fly. You are. Um, I would die for your texture. Uh, you say that, but then you have to deal with hair. That's the texture of pubes. <laughs> but it's, so. I love it. It's my favorite. Pubes is my favorite. Oh, it's, it's everybody's favorite. <laughs> everybody's favorite. It's really gross. Um, it's disgusting, but you know what? Get used to it, listeners, because disgusting is going to be the theme of the evening. Yes. And if it's your first time here, my name is Kita. And my name is Sally. And we are your co-hosts. 
Mm-hmm. And this is Homicide Worldwide, our wee little podcast we where we talk about moita and all things associated therewith. Allegedly. Allegedly. Fucking yes, always allegedly. Always allegedly. Don't sue us. Unless you're Casey Anthony. In which case, go ahead. Bitch. <laughs> yeah. It's nothing alleged. Yeah, it's nothing alleged about it. Yeah. Yeah. So decomposition is where we're going to take you tonight on this delightful, stinky, smelly journey into the <laughs> aftermath of what we research, which is murder. So the aftermath is what happens when life leaves the body. But action hasn't left the body because a lot more things will happen to it in the course of it breaking down. And as I like to say, going back to the earth. Yes, it's exactly Mm. what it does. Decomposition is a fact of life. It is part of the nutrient cycle, which supports all life. Decomposition, if you don't know, if you don't know, this probably isn't the best podcast for you if you don't know what decomposition is, but... (laughs) Uh, maybe something a little more in the children's section. But anyway, it's the process by which things that have died break down or are broken down into their component parts. And then the nutrients and parts that make them up, the water, uh, the, the minerals, the compounds are released back into the world to become food for other things, to go into the soil, to be uptaken by plants, to become strong, which are then eaten by animals, which are then eaten by us which we then excrete and then animals and plants die and all this stuff goes back into the nutrient cycle and is then the circle of life. Circle of life. So decomposition, it's a fact of life and it is required for all living things on earth to continue to survive because all living things feed on other living things with the exception, very few exceptions. One of the largest of which is plants, you know, mostly feed on energy from the sun they also require nutrients and those nutrients come from the soil and from the bodies of things that have died. Yes. So literally everything requires decomposition to survive. Yes. And it's a pretty gross thought at what it is, but mm-hmm. in a way really isn't if you stop to like take yourself out of it. That's right. Because it really is fascinating. the thing that kind of sustains, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it everything is. needs something else to die to live. If you break it down like that, that's kind of what we're talking about. So we're going to take you on a little tour tonight, a little tour through decomposition, but with a little twist. There's a lot of ways to look at decomposition, and that would take more time than you or we are going to devote to this. So we're going to kind of look at it more through the lens of human decomposition and especially through the lens of homicide as well. So we'll look a little at forensic entomology. (gasps) Maggots. Maggots. I'm going to talk extensively about maggots. I have any respect for maggots. I have to tell you. I I really do. I never have had respect for them. So any kind of respect would be a new respect. We're going to take you to a little view of the body farm, which is uh, about an acre of land on a hillside in Tennessee, where donated bodies are left in various positions, covered and uncovered, buried and unburied to learn how the human body decomposes under different conditions. And we might even look at a few interesting cases in which decomposition played a role. First, let's take a look at the human relationship with decomposition and how it's kind of evolved through the ages. Yes, what is your relationship with decomposition, Sally? My relationship with decomposition is much like my relationship with sharks. In that- I find it absolutely fascinating and I seek out information about it and I like to view it from afar. That's a very Mm -hmm. good way of putting it. 
thank you. I have a way with words. Humans have always been aware of decomposition, even when we were Neanderthals and like clubbing each other with the jawbones of oxen and things like that. We were aware of it. And one of the reasons that we were aware that decomposition was a bad thing was due to the fact that we've evolved to be repulsed by the smell of a decomposing body. There are actually reactions that we have that we can't control. Some very interesting research has come out. One of the chemical compounds that's produced by the breakdown of fatty acids in the decaying tissue of dead bodies. And that chemical compound is charmingly called putrescine. Ooh. Oh, wow. Does that have anything to do with decomposing things? Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, it mm, also putrescine. does kind of sound like it could be a color. Oh my God, it could. It's like kind of like a vomitous. I just, oh my God, yeah. you read my mind. Yeah, it, it's, it's like because mm, we are ma- brain melded. <laughs> mustard. With a hint of green. Yes, with like some gold. Yeah, and like, maybe a swirl of purple around the edges. Oh yeah, that's putrescine. Putrescine, that's putrescine. Yeah, that's a putrescine. It's like the color of a bruise, like some yes. like bad bruise, like four or five days in. It's just all colors. So putrescine is this compound and it's when you smell a dead body and you're like, wow. That is mostly putrescine and also the ammonia uh, that's given off by, it's a byproduct of what the maggots are doing. They actually excrete ammonia because there's nothing about maggots that's not disgusting. That's something that I also learned in my research, Keita. <laughs> While um, you're learning to respect them, you're also like, you're still disgusting to me. Every time I would read something about, is there anything about this creature? No, everything's disgusting. Everything <laughs> about them is disgusting. But anyway, I get ahead of myself. So putrescine functions in humans as this sensory warning signal. And what it does is when we smell it, and research was done to kind of verify this, all this stuff, you know how people do it. It activates a series of different threat management responses in humans. Some of them are sort of conscious and some of them are unconscious. So what they discovered was that exposure to putrescine, to the smell of it, elicited distancing and defensive reaction. So that's your fight and flight response. So right away that turns on when you smell a dead body. It creates vigilance. So this like heightened awareness of your surroundings and sort of alertness and wariness about something might happen. That makes sense because you wouldn't want to die. Right? It's an alert. If died here, then I might die here too. Like maybe this is where something dragged the carcasses that it's eating. Like maybe it'll drag my carcass here too. That's what happens when you smell putrescine. And that's oh. like exactly what your body does. It raises a fucking red flag. So it also heightens the accessibility in your brain of thought processes that are about escape and uh, threat. Mm. So it just kind of makes those, your any awareness or ability you have in that regard, it kind of heightens your accessibility of those. Yeah. And it also, unsurprisingly, increased the speed participants walked away from the location of the smell. You think? Wow, that's some good science. Really makes a lot of sense if you think about it. It really does. Yes. But so there is a chemical compound in decomposing bodies called putrescine that actually activates these very sort of subconscious parts of our brain that warn us that some bad shit happened here. So the, the repulsion that we smell, we experience it as an olfactory thing, something mm-hmm. to do with our noses. And it does hit us that way. But in terms of what that then causes and the cascade of reactions that happen inside our body, it really does create um, 
get ready to get the fuck out of here so that you don't get eaten by the same thing that killed that dead guy who stinks now. <laughs> yes. He's um, putrescining he, everywhere. He's putrescining all over the joint. Humans have made many efforts throughout the centuries to thwart decomposition. And one of the most fascinating and dramatic ways that they've done that is through mummification. This is a process that actually began about 7,000 years ago. This is the first evidence that we have of mummified bodies. And it actually came about, you're all thinking Egypt, because you think you're so smart. It's not actually Egypt. <laughs> so put your hand down there and go sit at the back of the class. <laughs> wow, the, um, teacher Sally is I out. She's feisty. I, I had to be feisty all week and it hasn't really turned off yet. It's okay. So. It's okay. Yeah, it's all right. I like it on you. So the oldest deliberately interred mummies, that's an important caveat, were unearthed in the Camarones Valley of Chile. Now, if you know anything about the Camarones Valley of Chile, mm. you'll know that it's in the region called the Atacama Desert, which is one of the driest parts of the world. So mummies are already going to kind of happen a lot. But when you give them a little <laughs> extra help, like, for example, removing the soft tissue, the organs, the brains, then they really last a long ass time. And that's what happens. The Chinchoro people began the practice of mummification about, as I said, 7,000 years ago, which was 2,000 years before the Egyptians got in on the act. So once they had, as I said, removed all of the soft inside bits that decay very quickly, it's, you know, pretty obvious even to early people that the soft stuff is where all of the decay originates when decomposition starts. Makes sense. Doesn't it? And then the, the body was dried out. It was stuffed with reeds and dried plants. And then sticks were put into the arms and legs to kind of keep everything where it's meant to be. They would put a mask on the corpse's face and even sometimes a nice wig. See, even the corpses wore masks. Wear your mask. Yeah, exactly. Wear your damn mask and stop complaining about it. <laughs> then they painted the, the mummy at the end, which is quite nice, I think. And Aww. in that society, a lot of segments of the society were mummified and not just the elite, which was how it was in most of Egyptian society, but infants, children, adults, and even fetuses were mummified in the Chinchoro society in ancient Chile. Yeah. Um, but no one had it going on mummification wise, like the Egyptians. They were like, we're going to take these uh, teachings of the Chinchoro society mm -hmm. and we are going to fucking take that to the next level. They had really gotten it down to a freaking science. So a lot of their routines and their procedures and their rituals, they were very much cloaked in this aura of magic and the afterlife and the religion. But at the same time, they were very, very much based in the embalmers knew of uh, chemicals and you know, substances that were found in the earth that could then be refined and changed and boiled and stuff like this that would make them uh, very good at mummification. So they had many, many thousands of years to work this out. But this is kind of what it came down to when it was at its most refined. So this is what the process was. So it took about 70 days. Seven zero. And a lot of that is just like the drying out process, but we'll get to that. Oh, so yeah. yeah well, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You got to make it jerky before you can you <laughs> know, put, it, that. put it on the shelf. So there were these special priests and their job was the embalming job, right? The treating of the body, the wrapping of the body, the drying of it. So they needed to know the rituals. They needed to know all the prayers. And they also had to have a pretty detailed knowledge of human anatomy. So there was training that went into this whole process. As any 
person who's going to be involved in taking care of like a freaking pharaoh's body or even like an upper dignitary's body. Like you got to know your shit. You can't just go in there with like some large tool. That's it's gonna not going to be like our burial where they just find us in a ditch with like something to accelerate the decomposition like a, like shoveled on flaming, us. Or just like a burning tire <laughs> over our heads. <laughs> That's the uh, way I've always envisioned it. I know, seriously. It's a certain poetic glory in that. Put it on my tombstone. After the priests have gotten the body, they sort of clean it. And then the first step is the removal of all the internal parts that might decay rapidly. So just like the people in Chile worked out, you got to get rid of all those soft bits. It's why when you are partly, partly because they're gross as well and you don't want to have that shit lying around, but you know, it's why when you are preserving an animal, the first thing you do is you take out all of the digestive parts. The bacteria goes nuts there first Mm -hmm. and it continues to live even after you die. It keeps on chewing. Because guess what? Bacteria needs something. You're the host. You're the host, baby. You're just you're just a big meal. You're yeah. like a meal that's <laughs> like, also a house. God, I was so hungry. I was so hungry. Now I can just eat just as a much colony of bacteria. All we want is a meal. Will you die that's already? Right. Yeah. So we can just take over and just get done. So that's <laughs> kind of what they do. But anyway, so the, the first step in the process is taking out the internal organs. Now, this leads me to one of my favorite quotes, which was from Evelyn Evie, who was the heroine of the piece on the mummy. And she is very interested in mummification and she's describing it to Brendan Fraser's character. And this is what she says about it. And I'm going to try to do this in my best prim English accent. They take a sharp red hot poker, stick it up your nose, scramble things about a bit and then rip it all out through your nostrils. And the way she says it, it's just so glorious. She's so happy to be sharing this piece of information, but that's just what they do. They stick, it's not really red hot. They would get this a little hooked instrument And you had to carefully insert it up into the brain cavity and you had to get it up in there just the right way. Cause Mm. it's not just like open. There's like stuff in there. You have to get past like going your nasal bits. And then you would have to like pull it gently out, but without like destroying the King's face. So you have to collect, get the brain out. So that is uh, so gnarly. If you think about how long that would take and just the actual logistics of doing that. Yeah. And how do you know when you got the whole thing down, you just got your hand on his forehead. (laughs) You've got your tool in your hand, knee on the chest, knee on the chest. Like you ask for a bit more light, you stick it in (laughs) and you, you, push it in and you feel a little resistance and the guys you're, you're like mentors like okay now twist a bit to the right mm-hmm. okay now you're like now push down now twist okay now pull yeah you got your first goblet your first goblet of brain mm, delicious mm. brain comes in orders of goblets by the way oh, so god i'm yes, learning like a, so much i'm like born anew in your genius yeah no i'm just inventing shit as i go along but anyway so they would take out the brain it was very easy to disfigure the face you had to be very careful and then the organs of the abdomen would come out uh, through a, a cut made in the in the chest, usually on the left side. The heart was left in place because it was believed to be the center of a person's being and their intelligence and their personality. Yeah. So then other organs were separately put into special jars called canopic jars, which were carved out of alabaster or stone. And then those were the, uh, the stomach, the liver, the lungs, the intestines. I bet that was lovely after a week or so. And these were buried with the mummy. 
Um, but in later mummies, those organs were actually treated and wrapped up and then replaced back in the body as their own separate little mummies inside the mummy. They were like little organ mummies in the mummy. <laughs> but even then, like they, they would put the canopic jars in the tombs, but they would be empty. They were just kind of like weirdly like, representational. But then the embalmers, after they'd taken all the stuff out, they would pack the body in this kind of salt called natron, N-A-T-R-O-N. And they would sort of cover it. And it this particular salt has very good drying properties of like sucking moisture out of things. It's like, if you've got a bunch of this stuff and your cell phone dies, you know, like, well, don't use it because it's salt and that's stupid. But like, you get my point. Yeah. Um, rookie move. Actually, rookie. rookie so fucking move if you're an ancient <laughs> angel, let me tell you. So <laughs> they would also pack this stuff into the body cavity to again, give it more opportunity to like lose its moisture. And when the body had dried out completely, they would take out all the internal packets and of natron and then they would wash it off the body, like lightly though, so as not to like rehydrate all of the jerky. <laughs> I was going to say that would sort of be counterintuitive. Like, ah, shit, he rehydrated. God damn, damn it. it. More natron. Uh, bring the natron. <laughs> Margaret, hold the flashlight. God damn it, Margaret. <laughs> Always fucking Margaret. Anyway. <laughs> but the result after that was even though it was very dried out, but it was recognizable as the person. Sometimes the parts of the body that had kind of sunken in were kind of puffed out with linen or they would put false eyes or things like that to kind of, you know, give it that lifelike sheen. But the then glow. Would, the, the glow. If the you glow will. The fresh mummification. It, yeah. Um, it's the no makeup mm, makeup look for a mummy. Exactly, that's exactly right. Like mm -hmm. you have to they, go out looking like a million. Just dinars. want to look fresh. Mm -hmm, you do. Uh, just want to look fresh. <laughs> it's the opposite of fresh. It's yeah, jerky. Exactly. But it, so they, they, they would wrap. They would wrap and then wrap and fucking wrap that thing. They would wrap that mummy in hundreds of yards of linen. Sometimes even every finger and toe was separately wrapped before wow. the foot was wrapped. And then to protect the dead person, you know, during their journey in the afterlife, they would wrap these amulets and prayers and magical words written on some strips and paper. And then there would be all these layers of like oils and unguents and resins that were poured on the body between the layers. And all this was done to prevent decomposition. And if you see the mummies now, thousands, like three, four thousand years later, they are astonishingly well-preserved. Yeah. How much human bodies decompose. And really what you have to do there is take out the liquid and replace it with something else. Removing the water is really important. There's one instance where natural mummies take place, where decomposition is halted through natural means. And those are, there's several. One of them is like, if you're, if you die out in the desert, and it's particularly hot and there's particularly low, low moisture, the moisture can leave your body so quickly that you can actually naturally mummify. Mm, mm -hmm. it's like that or, that's not uncommon. But one of the most interesting natural mummifications was something called peat bog bodies. Oh. So peat bogs are these swampy, marshy land where sometimes that, that marshy wetness goes down like, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet. It can be very thick. Mm. And the peat is this sort of thick, decomposing layer of stuff. And what used to happen is that peat cutters would go out and they would cut big chunks of this peat and then dry it. And people would use it like uh, as cooking fuel. It was just like a way people would heat their houses with peat, oh, burn peat instead of logs, right? So huh. peat bogs, people would go out and cut peat, they would dry it and you would buy their chunks of peat. Good stuff. So peat bog bodies occur when a human body gets somehow into a fucking peat bog and then it is preserved. 
and the level of preservation is absolutely astonishing. So uh, if you want to look up what a peat bog body looks like, the one of the best ones to look up is Tolland Man, T-O-L-L-U-N-D, Tolland Man. So he was discovered in 1950 by peat cutters, and when they pulled his body out of the peat bog, they kind of, you know, stumbled across him and pulled him out. They thought it was a fresh murder. So they called the police. Oh my God. What? Well preserved. Holy crap. You can see wrinkles, eyelashes, pores. What happens in a peat bog is the water is very acidic. It's often very cold. And most importantly, it is a very low oxygen environment. So almost all of the things that will destroy living tissue or break down living tissue require oxygen. This is why in the Black Sea, under about, I think it's like three or 400 feet, there's like this anoxic environment. And if you find shipwrecks down there, they're almost completely intact. They haven't rotted away, even though they're thousands of years old, because there's no oxygen in those lower levels of the Black Sea. There's this whole patches of it where it's just like dead. That's crazy. And it is. And so it's similar in peat bogs where just due to these particular conditions, essentially the skin is tanned and even things like skin, hair, nails, wool, leather, anything that contains keratin, especially oh. tends to get very well preserved. It looks like he's going to open his eyes. It's super creepy, but they found <sighs> lots of these peat bodies and they're amazingly well preserved. So sometimes decomposition can be uh, deterred through deliberate human means that actually allow it to preserve bodies for centuries. And then sometimes nature has found its own ways to stop decomposition, but they happen accidentally and some of these bodies, like Tolland Band, was actually strangled or, or hung. He appeared to have been either probably ritually strangled for the purposes of like a ritual sacrifice. Mm. Then he was thrown into the peat bog and he still has the rope. The, oh, no way. Mirror. I was going to ask if he still had yeah. the, the mark. Holy you shit. Actually, you can still see the rope itself like twisted. And because it's so well preserved, it's like you can see the fibers. It's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah, check it out, man. people. Right, I'm going to go look at that, too. I'm all, I was, like, hanging like, on every word. I'm like, tell me more, Sally. It's pretty cool. Yeah. If people are going to go to Yahoo News, for some reason, it's going to be, like, trending now. Tolland, man. Nobody <laughs> will fucking know why, and it will be because of this episode. Exactly, because homicide worldwide is huge. Fighting the effects of decomposition, as we know from many of our very clever murderers uh, that we have profiled, it's a key goal of many of them. They understand that the human body is going to give them away or mm -hmm. when it decomposes, Casey Anthony. And, you know, <laughs> they, they look for ways to sort of competently or incompetently Joel Joel Jr. to get around <laughs> these things. <laughs> so, you know, it's very interesting to see how they perceive it, how they think they're going to be able to stop it or hide it. You know, their attempts to hide it like fucking Takahiro with his kitty litter. Sprinkle that shit. Sprinkle that shit, that kitty litter around. I mean, that's going to help. Yeah. It makes such a big difference. I mean, if it works for, you know, 24 seven on cat shit, why wouldn't it it's work on a dead body? It's certainly going to work on nine dead bodies. I mean, it's just math. It, it just math. It does. It, it works out if you think about it. <laughs> but um, 
So decomposition, you know, humans have had a long, long familiar history with it. The earliest texts on scientific observation of decomposition are honestly like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. Of course, it was the fucking Chinese because they always got to everything first. Um, They (laughs) got in on it real fast. And then in the sort of Enlightenment era and a little before the French got in on a lot of early texts on things like forensic entomology. And one guy spent a lot of unpleasant hours with many unfortunate dogs and released a huge treatise on toxins and their effect on mammals. Oh, That's as much as I'll say, but we still use that information today and we are protected by that information. It's a very difficult thing to balance out. You know, it's always been a part of our human experience. And uh, nowadays we have a pretty sterilized attitude towards death, although you could make a pretty good argument that the huge resurgence or I guess surgeons of interest in, you know, forensics and forensic shows and CSI, everything has really informed people a lot about decomposition and its process and what it means and how it works and how to measure its progress. But we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit uh, and get a little down and dirty with a corpse and the stages it goes through. Yes. Down and dirty with a corpse. Down and dirty corpse. You know, I love that. Let's go on a little journey through decomposition, shall we, Kita? Let's do it. All right. So step one, you die. <laughs> however That's, you die, you die. you die. You die. You're now you're dead. Yeah. You're not getting out of life alive. No, you're just fucking not. So just get over it. Yeah. Well, you don't have a choice now because you're dead. Exactly. Um, I mean, remember, death is not an event that happens in life. We do oh. not live to experience death. We, we can don't. experience dying, but we can't experience death. Yes. So there you It's Once you're done, you're done. Anyway, yeah. you die and it's a bummer. But here comes primary flaccidity. <laughs> oh, so many boner jokes to make, but I'm just going to keep going because we don't have that kind of time. So you go all floppy, right? Your muscles no longer are energized by the living force that was you. And now yeah. the meat sack that you drove around is all floppy. So flaccid. It's just flaccid all across the board. Yep. Um, but not for much longer because you're about to get rigid <laughs> and you get rigid through the much known process of rigor mortis. Yeah. Now rigor mortis literally is Latin for stiffness of death. Mm-hmm. And as the name suggests, that is when you get stiff after death and you get your so, boner back, you get your boner back, but, but now you're um, dead. Um, and then that's gross. It's gross. And also your whole body is a boner because <laughs> what happens is choose um, your adventure, Sally. What part do you like? Choose it wisely because <laughs> it could go bad very easily. Yeah. So starting around two to six hours following death, rigor mortis begins in sort of the more delicate parts of your body. So the eyelids, the neck, the jaw, and then it spreads to the other parts of the body, including the internal organs, basically anything that's got muscle for the next four to six hours. And then it generally peaks at about 12 hours after death, depending on your age, your physical condition, and also your sex and your muscular build. And it goes away after about 48 hours. So rigor mortis lasts about 36 hours. What happens basically is that as your body starts to change chemically following your death, about 12 hours in, your body runs out of an enzyme that stops your muscles from contracting. And when this enzyme runs out, your muscles all contract. Every muscle in your body, your whole body gets stiff. Every muscle in your body every muscle from the tiniest little muscles in your eyelid to your giant buttocks and everything in between. (laughs) So your muscles become stiff and they stay this way until the process of autolysis, which is 
which literally means self-consumption, until that continues to the point where the chemicals that are released cause that reaction to stop. And then you start to relax again. Now, when you start to relax a little bit, that's when bloat occurs. Now, bloating happens, it does overlap rigor mortis a little bit, and it it happens days two to seven. Now, this occurs because of those little hitchhikers we talked about earlier, all the bacteria that you carry inside you, which is a lot, like literally it's some large proportion of your body is not you, but other things. Even when you're alive, you have different- yeah. That, that's what yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like you you are like some. I can't remember how much it is. It'd be interesting to find out. Every like, part um, of your body, your mouth, your eyes, yeah. your nose. You're depending on you know your downstairs parts. Like mm-hmm. I mean, you have bacteria everywhere. You do, and it's a lot. And that bacteria is just ready to rock and roll when the bloating stage hits. As they sort of increase their activity, you're like, you're warming up with a little bit decomposition, like the body gets warmer for a little bit, everything gets, gets faster. And the byproducts of these bacteria are gases and those gases build up inside you and you continue to kind of get bigger until eventually you're going to pop. Yeah. It's the 4th Um, of July. It's a little 4th of July. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So it might just, you might sort of like blow out of an orifice or it might blow out of the side of you, depending on your situation. What would you choose in that instance if it was you? Orifice or? my ass for sure. (laughs) For the comedy, Kita. (laughs) True, it's true. But what if, Um, I mean, you know, what if nobody's there to witness the comedy? Oh, it's still funny. Yeah. It can can come out of your mouth, I would assume. It's orifice. That would be also, that would be hilarious, but disgusting. I'd like the death rattle. (sighs) On the sound, it sounds like you're trying to say something. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. God. Oh, dear. So here we are in the bloat stage, as I said. So you get this balloon-like appearance. And now that putrefaction processes are causing the temperatures inside the body to rise, you start getting more insect activity. This is when the greatest numbers of adult blowflies, diptera, Blowflies are one of the earliest colonizers of dead bodies. It's interesting to know that they're attracted not by just dead things, but specifically by like a a little bit of a rotting smell. So you can learn a lot about when a person died based on when they start to get colonized. Now, after the bloat stage, we are into the active decay stage. Uh, Active decay, as it sounds, is when just you are just writhing and you are an absolute banquet of delights for everybody in the forest. Tasty. Everyone's coming to the party that is your body. Basically, active decay is when your abdominal wall is penetrated and then you deflate, right? Which ends the bloat stage. And then after this point, your internal temperature rises to about 14 degrees above the outside temperature, just like a compost pile. You know how this, like, you know, in the morning when you see a compost pile steaming and you're like, wow, it's a cold morning. Why is that compost pile steaming? It's decomposition, right? It takes a little. So if it's a hundred degrees outside, you're saying that you rise to 114 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The odors are very much increased. 
and they do fall again when the temperature inside the body drops. But as the, the temperature in the body increases, the odors are very strong. There is a steady decrease in the weight of the carcass until, up until the 10th day. And this is because literally the biomass of the corpse is converted to the biomass of maggots. So you're saying all I need to do is die and then wait mm. five to 13 days and I'll lose a few pounds? You will absolutely be the <laughs> slimmest you've ever been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd be like, she might be writhing with maggots, but boy, she's slender. By about day 10 of just like a corpse being left out in the open and just like average temperatures, average humidity, average everything. By about day 10, the weight of the body is starting to decrease because of all of the activity that's happening during active decay. Active decay. I want that as a license plate so bad. I know, you really just need to look into it and see if I it's know, available. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we've got the post-decay stage, which is also sometimes called advanced decay. That's days approximately 10 to 23. And in this stage, it's when uh, most of the flies have left the carcass the maggots have turned into flies. That's why there's no maggots anymore. There's probably a bunch of little egg, you know, casings behind from the various pupil stages. Which it's is rude. Gross. Just rude. Clean your shit up. Yeah. And at this point in post-decay, there's bones, cartilage, hair, a little bit of tissue, a lot of something called BOD or byproducts of decay, which is a wet viscous material. Probably not something that you want to get too close in, step in, be a part of in any way. And the BOD, that sort of wet, slimy material that's kind of all that's left of you, mostly what's left of you, that's the major area where the insects are during the post-decay stage. And then there's the, the stage called dry remains. Now, this is sort of about day 20, 25 onwards. And this is where we've got bones with little cartilage, the byproducts of decay pile, that wet viscous pile has mostly dried up and things start to happen like the bones come apart, the mandible comes apart from the skull because it doesn't have that soft tissue to hold it in place anymore. And then you've got declining insect populations. Everyone's just kind of leaving the party now because it's all Everybody's drunk. It's last call. The lights just went into the bar. Yeah, exactly. Fly A looks at Fly B and is like, fuck, that's what you look like. I'm out of here. I'm undone, man. Yeah. I'm done. I'm so fucking full. (laughs) These are the five stages. So we've got, as I said, we've got fresh, bloat, active decay, advanced decay, and dry remains where there's just what it sounds like dry fucking remains. So, you know, you will get interesting stories about bodies that are, for example, buried from the waist up. And then depending on the circumstances of the waist down, they will be mostly intact from the waist down and mostly skeletonized from the waist up. So depending on where they're buried and how they're buried, it can grossly change how the body decomposes. And there are places that actually research this. Where would that place be? This is the body farm. Oh, I thought you'd Welcome. never get to it. I know. Oh my God. We've wanted to get here for a long time. Welcome to the freaking body farm, people. Kita, I know you're interested. I know you're fascinated. Oh, I'm I fascinated was. Too. I'm so good. So excited about this part. Mm-hmm. So, this is a facility. It's called officially the 
Anthropological Research Facility, yes. or the ARF. Yep. It was established by the University of Tennessee in 1980 by Dr. William Bass. Who's really kind of just, he's a fucking legend. He's a legend. He's written a couple of great books. One of them was called Death's Acre, which talks mm. about his experiences setting up the body farm and, and what it was like and what they found out. So but really what this was, was a piece of land that has been set aside in Tennessee. It's kind of on this hillside. Yeah, it's like three acres. Yeah. It's got a, a bunch of different sort of landscapes, open areas, mm-hmm. wooded areas, wet areas, dry areas, places where there are, you know, uh, sheds or half buried this or half buried that. And, and what they do is they receive dead bodies, mostly donated bodies now because mm-hmm. people are interested and want to be involved in this donated bodies. And they place these bodies in various different situations, postures, locations, covered, uncovered, all this stuff. And then they just leave them to the elements and observe how they decompose. Which is honestly like initially, like I think that just learning that a place like this exists is kind of shocking. It's like, you're like, wait, what? I've known about it for like a long time, but it wasn't really until I started looking into stuff for this episode that I actually like learned about it. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's really cool what they do. And it was popularized by Patricia Cornwell's book, The Body Farm, where she talks about a lot of the work that was done there. And that's kind of part of her character's background. But it's an absolutely fascinating idea. There are other facilities too around the world. There's seven now in the USA. Yeah. One in Europe, one in Australia, and there's more in the planning stages too. Which is really cool because different climates play such a major role. Right. Uh, I mean, look at the the arid climate that is Australia in a lot of parts. I mean, I know a lot of parts get rain too, but look at that versus like what it's like in Tennessee at the original facility versus Mm -hmm. wherever. I think there are a couple in Florida. No, I think there's one in Florida actually. No matter where you go, because something is going to decompose differently here in California than say it is in somewhere like Florida or where they have a lot of humidity or, you know, exactly. out here, it's like, we don't know what rain looks like. What's rain? You're right about the the humidity and the heat. Like obviously in high summer, in a wet climate, bodies go fast and being able to see what influences the speed of decomposition. Obviously we know things like, you know, moisture does, but there are other factors that can come into it. And when you have bodies just sitting out, decaying, and you go at regular intervals, I don't know how often I'm assuming it's not necessarily daily, but at least weekly, where they go out and they take measurements, many, many measurements. They take measurements of the body, how it's changing, moisture content, you know, like how much of this has retracted, how much of, you know, that is retracted. They take, you know, samples of the soil, what's happening in the soil as the pH changing. They take measurements of the gases that are given off as the body decomposes. They note the plants and animals that occur. They take note of not just the plants and animals that come to feast on the body and make use of it, but how they grow. That has informed a lot of criminal cases. The the information coming out of this kind of research is really important. And one of the most important aspects is that it's interdisciplinary. So you can have, you know, odor analysis and entomology and soil analysis and pathology and anatomical research. All these different aspects come together to kind of twine together. It's not just about you know, what happens on the autopsy table. It's all these other disciplines as well. And I think it's so, yeah, it's so important 
what they do, it facilitates a lot of answers in homicides Mm -hmm. that you might not have if it wasn't for a place like this. It's really helpful to know all of these things and how Mm -hmm. it plays into if somebody's body is dumped somewhere. That's right. And if it was dumped, you know, how can you tell? And what are the signs of a body that's been moved? You know, what happens when you you pick up a body that's been decomposing somewhere and you drag it and you put it somewhere else? Like they can answer these questions. They can find out by actually doing experiments. Yeah. And so the gift that people give when they die and they donate themselves to the body farm is a gift that actually, I mean, first of all, it's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. It's um, the gift that keeps on giving really. It really freaking is, yeah. you know, and I love the idea personally of, I don't know, I, I know it's super gory and a lot of people don't like to think about what happens to their body after death. And I'm, I'm pretty cool with whatever, you know, I don't really think I'll care at that point. You know, I don't mind the idea of running out on some Tennessee hillside while some grad students come in and every you know week they're like, hi, Sally, looking good. Yeah, um, exactly. Know, hey, buddy. And you're not alone. You're not. That's the cool thing about it. I mean, like, I know this sounds kind of weird to say, but it's like, you're not alone. All these other like people out there doing your thing too. And you're like, hey, students coming by and people like, you know, touring and being like, and here's Sally. Um, You know, we decided to put her under a piece of corrugated metal. She's doing very well. (laughs) We left her arm out though. So you can see that's decomposing completely differently from the rest of her. Exactly. And, you know, the vultures came on by and they went ahead and picked off, you know, a couple fingers. A couple of fingers and took the eyes and the, you know, most of the left cheek. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see inside (laughs) her head now. But apart from that, she's looking pretty good. Yeah, she's doing okay. um, There is a huge amount of information that is being extracted. And some of the variables that they have to consider are things like the body mass of the quote unquote victim, their microbiome. So what's happening in your body? What's your flora like on the inside that's affecting your decomposition, your general health? Did you have any drugs in your system? For example, if you had antibiotics in your system at the time of your death, it will speed down the rate of decomposition. Really? Anti- yeah, because antibiotics stop things from biotic you. Yeah. And there's other factors too, but those are the main ones. There's also the things that are not involved with your body that are sort of extrinsic or outside factors, things like the general temperature in the world at that time, how much water is not only in the air, but in the soil and around you and falling from the sky, the oxygen level. As we mentioned with the peat bogs, that makes a big difference to, mm-hmm. to decomposition. The acidity makes a big difference. Whether you are wrapped or unwrapped, are you in a sleeping bag? Are you in a tube? Are you in clothes or naked? And also uh, the deposition of the body. So how it's put, where it's put, what's put on it, under it, around it, through it. And then there are outside factors that are biotic or are living. And those are things like microbes, arthropods or you know, insects, things that crawl that are going to eat birds and mammals. So those are all of the variable factors that they consider in the body farm when they are looking at how bodies decompose. It's a really cool gift to do actually. And it's free. Is it really? (laughs) Yeah. So you're, yeah. I mean, I don't know um, outside of, I think if there are certain diseases, I want to say hepatitis C Mm -hmm. is one they won't accept a COVID uh, really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's, it was like on their website, but I mean, I guess that makes sense. Cause we're still kind of trying to figure out how it behaves and you know, the things that go on with it. And I'm sure they don't want to have some random outbreak. If something mm-hmm. terrible mutates even worse. I can, I can understand why they yeah, do that. I can I mean, absolutely understand that one. 
Something that's really cool about this anthropological research facility is it's obviously like dedicated to the dead bodies and how they go through their decomposition journey. It wouldn't be unlikely to see somebody underneath like a corrugated piece of metal with an arm out. And they do that because of what you said, like this part of her is decaying differently from this part. But it's interesting how they have, and I had mentioned the vultures, but they do have sections of it where the environment is a little bit different. So for example, there's an area where it's kind of wooded. There is an area where it's wide open and there is nothing protecting these corpses. And then they have the, like the corpses that are kind of like in a little metal cage where they just want to see what happens to Mm. this person. So they have to keep these bodies protected by something around them. But the ones that are kind of left out in the elements, right? Nature exists. So if you're left somewhere and what happens Mm. if there's a mountain lion and your bones get scattered or the vultures do come and eat your eyeballs, you know, we have to find these answers out. Right. Mm. So it's really pretty cool. And it sounds horribly creepy at times when you talk about it, but the staff kind of view it like it's a very peaceful place, like almost like a park in a way. It's like Imagine that well, it's just like a park devoted to learning. Noise. I mean, they, you know, these are very quiet people. We always sort of as a human species associate death with the like anything malevolent. Right. It's right. just a very like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're watching this person's arm kind of slowly come off of the body, but They're not going to do anything to you. They're just sort of decaying. And they're doing something that is the most natural thing that happens to any living thing. Actually, you know, it's funny. There's a condo complex that's very close to the body farm. I kind of feel like it wouldn't necessarily bother me that that was near my house. Like I wouldn't trip on that so much as I would if it was a real hot day and I don't know, the, maybe the wind was blowing the wrong direction. Apparently there the smell. are odors. If it is, as you said, a very warm day and wind is blowing. Yeah, the wind kicks the east, up. You know, mm. just in the right direction. You're Property values. Location, so, location, location. That's right. <laughs> Next to one of the most storied anthropological research institutes in the world. You know, there's no way to sell it. No, but these are important facilities. And one of the the best things that they can, there's two things really that this facility provides that are really important. One is an increase in things like theses and dissertations. On the topic of decomposition in lots of different fields, academic fields, and then these are quoted and used in, but you know, like investigation of crimes and in prosecuting crimes and people who write them are called as witnesses. And and this contributes to the general increase in information Mm -hmm. and knowledge that we use to catch and prosecute these assholes. The other important thing that the body farm and places like it provide is a place for investigators and law enforcement and grad students to train in excavation techniques. Yeah. Uh, how to document it when a body has been scattered by animal activity, which is actually really important. Like even obviously none of what anybody did mattered because she got fucking let off. But in the case of Kaylee Anthony's death, you know, her body was scattered a long way. And the way that it was scattered said a lot about how and when she died and what happened to her body after its death. So 
knowing where the pieces are and charting it and being able to record it on paper or however you record it is really important. But those training opportunities, that, that real world knowledge of looking at a body in situ, looking at it as it has been you know, when it's been there for like six months is a completely different training experience as you can only imagine than like looking at a body on a autopsy table. Right. To that point, there I have two things on this. When I was watching some documentaries about this, there were quite a few on the body farm that are out there on YouTube. And I just kind of went through and I was looking at different ones. And there's this one video where the people who are in it, it's like the people who work at the body farm mm -hmm. and then authorities. And it's like, it's just like, it's so cool to watch how interested they are. And like, they're just like geeking out on, I mean, it would mm -hmm. probably be like if you and I were there, mm -hmm. just like fully geeking out on this stuff. And you know, you're just like, oh my God. And like one guy is, he's looking at something and he's like, oh my God, like he gets all excited and everything. And so it's really- I love watching people with that kind of passion. Like, yeah, I don't even care what your it. fucking job is. Like, I don't care what, I don't care if you collect <laughs> trash. Just be passionate about what it is that you do. That is, I love it when people have that. There was a video I saw way back when it was like a little comedy video and it's these like two aliens and they've been like investigating humans and they meet together. They're in their like human disguises, which are not very convincing. And they meet at this diner to exchange information about what they've learned about people. And they sit down and the guy says to a superior, he's like, I found out something really interesting. And the guy says, what did you find out? And he said, they're made of meat. <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? He's like, they're, they're made of meat. Their bodies are made of meat. He's like, meat? Yeah, they're made of meat. And when I was looking through so much of all of the research for this and the pictures that I looked at, holy God, I just kept thinking about that again and again. We're made of meat, but because of what we eat, we probably taste like ass. Yeah, it's pretty gross. The other cool thing about the body farm, what it does is you know, we were talking about murders and, and homicides and things like that and the crime scene investigators and law enforcement who work together with everybody. Well, they have this program where they've been helping people from Mexico because of all the mass burial sites God. that are happening. This facility helps train the people who are working in Mexico when they find these big burial sites to learn how to, you know, read the remains and so oh, it's wow. a really cool thing because it's like, this is coming into a very, it's a really touchy subject, so I'm not going to get too far into it. But, you know, there have been a lot of people who've been discovered over the last few years and a lot of them remain unidentified. And so these programs yes. will help them sort of learn how to figure out who these people were. And give some peace to the families yeah. who are missing loved ones. And what the training also does is that it means that when remains are unearthed they are unearthed correctly and they are unearthed in ways that will allow evidence to be preserved so that later down the line new techniques and new methods might be able to reveal their identity even if they don't reveal it now it's just being able to correctly excavate a site so that evidence could be preserved that is one of the most important and i think infuriating things for mm. investigators is when a crime scene is incorrectly processed. Oh, yeah. It has to be processed in a certain order, you know, from the outside in 
Evidence that will degrade most quickly needs to be recorded, protected. You know, there's ways to do things. And when it's not done correctly and in the right order, you can lose really important, really critical, vital evidence. Oh, you know, like um, Joel Guy Jr. Yeah, Joel Guy Jr. That that being the the example of how to handle it. Exactly. By the um, by the authorities, nice. yeah, that the way was they a just nice case. In it that was regard. so yeah. tight the way they handled Ugh. it. But then yeah. you hear of these other things where they're just so botched, and it's like it's like every move they make is just a fumble. That's how I feel about Nicole Brown Simpson. I was thinking about sort of that death one. scene, or yeah. how it was just like everybody wanted to come see the hot dead chick, and so there was just like <laughs> you guys are gross. It's so nasty. Like if they had protected that scene and gotten all the footprint evidence which was extensive yeah, because it was just bloody footprints up the wazoo. They could have charted the entire crime based on the footprint evidence, but it was completely covered by like many scores of officers just tramping through the whole place, spreading blood everywhere. Yeah, no, it's Anyways. totally true. The cool thing also about how I was saying you can donate your body, you can donate your body. All you have to do is just go onto the website and click a couple of links and you can figure out how to give your gift of yourself, which is Dude, really I'm pretty totally cool. I'm totally going to do it. I, you know, as I was researching, <clears throat> I was like, okay, you know, I have this total phobia of confined places and I don't want to be buried. I obviously don't want to be buried alive. I think yeah, that- I would really rather not be buried alive. <laughs> I mean, they definitely- Just as a general across the board. Uh, yeah, that's definitely- yeah top of my list of ways not mm-hmm, to die. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it's a fairly easy process to do. And I think they get like 150 to 200 bodies a year and each body stays for like a year. Oh my God. Like roughly, you know, maybe some but a little longer, some a little less, to... but yeah, it's generally around that time frame. I wonder what it's like when you get, and I'm not fat shaming here at all because I'm fat myself, but I wonder what it's like when you get a really, really, really obese person and you get to watch the physical process of decomposition of a a body that is kind of on the sort of more unusual end, whether it's rather tall or slim or young or old or big or fat or small, like that's got to be interesting when you get some kind of sort of bodily stream. Oh, for sure. And I think the same would be true if somebody was, for whatever reason, extremely thin. Exactly. And like, do they mummify faster? Is there not so much insect activity? You know, you would expect like a larger body has a, generally has a larger water content and a right. smaller body probably has less. So, you know, do they just get like jerky? And is it faster? I would guess. Mm-hmm. I would guess too. I would totally yeah. guess that. Listeners, all of us here at Homicide Worldwide are very excited to share one of our favorite podcasts with you. It's called Nerded Through the Grapevine, and here to tell you more about it are four best friends. Hey, everybody, I'm Dane Holland. It's a new STD, a sonic transmitted disease. <laughs> I'm Austin Shazam Pfeiffer. So it would be just a smushed mashed potato situation going on in my young adolescent crotch area. I'm Marcus Whitaker, known as I'm Electric Man. So instead of talking about how CERN is trying to open up a portal to hell and in the entire universe, I guess I'm just going to read jokes off the freaking internet. And I'm Austin Tiny Zoom. 
Doctor Strange, he's circumcised because would you want to uncircumcise wizard? I don't think so. And if you'd like any of that to make any sense whatsoever, tune in to Nerd It Through the Grapevine, a podcast where four best friends gather weekly to talk about our favorite parts of past, present, and future nerd culture every Monday on Spotify, iTunes, and whatever your favorite app for podcast is. Come join us in the grapevine. You can find Nerdy Through the Grapevine wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, that is the body farm. Definitely worth more of a look. And as I mentioned, uh, Dr. Bill Bass's book, uh, Death's Acre, is a really nice introduction yeah. to this place of decomposition. Yeah. And I mean, people also view it as like a place of hope because it's mm-hmm. really just kind of that it is a place of hope. People are learning things. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. Way to go, Bill. You've really made something that honestly contributes important information to the human endeavor, you know, we're learning a lot and it, it does good. Yeah. You know, it's kind of unfortunate that they don't give tours. Oh, that does suck, doesn't it? But I can understand why in this case, because I mean, imagine how many whack jobs would go and just be like disrespectful or, you know, somebody would do something lame and think it was cool. I wonder if it's on Google Earth. Oh, yeah. I've never thought about that. I wonder if you could fly a drone over it and take photos. Oh, God. Could you imagine? But imagine. Like you and I would just be like, can I touch it? it? Does it have larva? (laughs) Or pupa. Pupa. Well, actually, speaking of which. Hmm. Let's talk about pupa. Do you have some time for some maggots? (laughs) Thought you'd never ask. Oh, my God. So I know a lot of people don't like maggots, and I personally am not a big fan of maggots, but... Having investigated maggots for this case, I have a new respect for the maggot just from kind of like an evolutionary perspective of it fulfills its function so incredibly well. Mm. And its function is to eat and breathe. (laughs) That's what its job is, is to eat and breathe. I know some people who... Pretty much that's all they do. That's pretty much their life now. Eat and breathe and watch TV. Um, So basically you, dear listener, are a huge delicious meal. And the (laughs) blowflies of the world are just waiting for you to die so they can land on you. Different insects show up at different times to feed on a fresh body, depending on their preference for freshness. Some like it fresher, some like it less fresh. Insects choice. (laughs) And so one of the earlier ones to show up is the blowfly. Now, the blowfly is the creature that is responsible for bringing the maggots that will eat up to 60% of a human body in a week. Oh, God, that is so foul. It's going to get worse. So a female blowfly lays up to 300 eggs at a time. (sighs) Why is she so fertile? And with numerous females, will visit a corpse. 
And so the number of maggots can be huge. To give you an example, there was a bunch of researchers who put out a piece of meat. It was 156 grams. So that's like about a five and a half ounce steak. Not very big about the size of your palm. After 24 hours of exposure to female blowflies laying eggs on it, they found 48,562 maggots in that piece of meat. Now you might be like, how can that many maggots fit in that piece of meat? Because maggots are like, you know, like an inch long, right? Okay. No, they aren't in their first situation. So the flies have a pretty extensive life cycle. The, the female lays the eggs and the eggs hatch. And out comes a wee little baby maggot. That's disgusting. Are, I know. They're tiny. They're, they're only like two millimeters long, which is like, I don't know, like a 16th of an inch or something. They're piece tiny, of rice. Right? Piece of rice. No, no, no. Way smaller than rice. Oh. Piece of, much more like about the length of quinoa, but like the width of like a human hair. They're little at this point. They're like tiny little threads, right? And they're crawling around. That's why 48,000 of them can fit. Oh my God, I'm literally going to throw up. Keep it together. Keep it together. You can do it, listener. If you can do this, you can do anything. Stay with me, guys. um, If I got to do this, you do too. You've committed. Now, but here's what to know about all of those maggots. Because that wasn't enough food for them, only 231 flies finally emerged from that and the rest of them died. So just because they all hatch doesn't mean they all live. But as I said, in warm weather, yeah, 60% of a human body in less than a week. The eggs hatch out crawls a larva. The larva is the maggot. It's like the wormy part, the wormy stage of the, the being a fly. It's like the caterpillar part of being a butterfly, except super gross. Yeah. Well, why is it that a caterpillar and so a cute. maggot are like, they're still going to transform into something, but like what makes the caterpillar like so much cuter? Well, because it turns into something that delicately feasts on the nectar of beautiful flowers. Whereas the other one turns into something that disgustingly feasts on dead flesh. Yeah. But even still, like even just after like it's a thing and it becomes a fly, it's still disgusting. It's still disgusting. Everything about them is disgusting. I'm telling you, there's, it's like Peter Curtin. There's nothing about it that's not disgusting. It's just disgusting. But anyway, we're going to go into it. So here we go. So the maggots do this thing where they shed their skin. And this is pretty common in animals like this as they grow, right? They get bigger, they get bigger. Their skin doesn't really get bigger that much. And so they get to a point where they have to shed it. And then they have a new skin. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they shed that one. And they keep getting successively bigger. So these stages for maggots are called instars. To each of the sort of molting phases. In the first instar, that's when they're these tiny little ones. And then they grow to about a quarter inch and then they shed their skin. And in the second instar, they get to about half inch. And then in the third instar, they get to about uh, an inch and a half. And then they wander off. God, come on. And so while they're maggots, their job is to eat and eat. Now, this is what maggots do. They eat and they breathe. The front of their bodies have these two mouth hooks. Oh, God. I know. I'm telling you, it's all disgusting. And what I'm they, so they glad use you them, took this part. I know. They use them to like rake the flesh in front of them and oh. kind of shred it and oh, eat it. Fuck. Right? That is awful. They're like, little, like, they're little miners. They're like little miners, but instead of mining through rock, <laughs> they're mining through flesh. Okay. Oh, my so, God. Right. And their ass has an anus, right? Which you would hope for because they have to shit. And they mostly shit like ammonia which is lovely, right? What else is it? They're disgusting. They also have something called a spiracle. 
posterior spiracle. It's basically an ass breathing hole. And their ass breathing hole oh means God. that their breathing hole is on the other end of then their eating hole. And so they can breathe and eat at the same time. I can breathe and eat at the same time. Breathe and, and, No, but they like without coming up for breath. You actually can't breathe and eat at the same time. You could kind of stick a piece of food to the side of your mouth while you take a breath, but you can't actually breathe and eat at the same so time. So you're you saying that pause. it's actually like completely simultaneous. They don't stop eating. They don't stop eating. They breathe near their ass and oh. then their mouth parts have got their two raking hooks, which shred flesh and eat, eat, eat. That is so eat, fucking eat, eat, nasty. Eat, eat. So they are basically, so between their head and their tail, they've got this kind of like a muscular segmented body, like the sandworms from Dune. And then a simple <laughs> intestine that's in the middle. And then two huge salivary glands because their job is to eat. So what do you need a lot of saliva to digest your food, right? So two huge salivary glands. They wriggle through a corpse. They secrete digestive enzymes through their salivary glands. And while they do that, they're actually spreading bacteria that increase putrefaction as well as their own action of digging through the corpse. Right? Do you Everything know the nightmares I'm going to have tonight? Yeah. No, no, no. What's going to happen is this is going to cleanse your brain like a searing holy fire. And tonight you're just going to dream of like puppies and unicorns and just like gentle rolling meadows. Just check it out. I'm not even kidding you. Oh, I better. Yeah. This is like you're gonna going to get like to a 2 a.m. call and I'm going to be like, like, fuck you. It's maggots all the way down. No, <laughs> this is like a, a mental going to the gym and working out so hard. And then you just sleep for it. Like you have the sleep of the dead. This is what this is going to be. But maggots, oh, it gets God. worse. Fuck. Maggots, putrefying bacteria that they spread with their digestive enzymes creates this kind of soupy environment that is just fabulous that they love, that is just gooey and soupy. And this allows them to create something called a maggot mass. So maggots actually love to be buddies with other maggots and be with them and kind of hug them and love them. And the activity of their digestion is so intense that the dead body heats up in the area where there is a maggot mass, which is, you know, when you see that like writhing, like mass under, yeah, that's, that's a maggot mass, right? It can reach 127 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my that's 53 God. degrees Celsius for the civilized world. <laughs> I was and waiting it, for you to say that. Uh, boom, you know, I'm always there. <laughs> and it can get so hot inside a maggot mass that the maggots in the middle of the maggot mass have to actually crawl to the edge to like cool the fuck down, man, because it's too fucking hot. It's in the like middle, a mosh man. pit back in it's, the day. It's funny you should say that because I was listening to a book by Val McDermott called Forensics, which I highly recommend. Listen to on Audible because it's narrated by a Scottish woman and it's bloody awesome. Anyway, she literally called it a mosh pit. Oh, I love her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, when you said mosh pit, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, she said it was a mosh pit. Oh. And the heat is an, like just a freaking bonus because it increases the rate of decay, right? Just like summertime in Florida, it's going to rot a lot faster than Sorry, Florida. in Alaska. Sorry, it's always you, Florida. I know we always come for you. We, we, we don't mean to. Well, to round out my maggot talk this evening, when they've gone through their third instar, they increase greatly in size. At that point, they turn into this thing called a pre-pupa, where they kind of like hump away from the corpse in their weird little maggot walk. Can and you say it? They, Can you say it like Hannibal Lecter? Oh, pupa. 
I'm a pupa. I can't. You do it so well. Oh my Thank God. You. you have that creepy, creepy Hannibal Lecter <laughs> freaking voice. I love it. But no. <laughs> never they, said they, anything they, nicer to me. I know. It's compliments all over across the board. <laughs> and your hair looks fucking awesome as usual. As does yours. Thank you. It really does tonight. Right. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but they, they crawl away to find a pupation site, which is usually pupation. in the soil. They tunnel down about 15 inches sometimes. It, the pupa doesn't feed. So anything that it does has to come from all of its previous chomping activities when it was a maggot. When it was had um, its mouth hooks and its an asshole breather. An asshole breathing, exactly. An excreting of ammonia and it's like bacterial soup that it made through its own excretions. Yummy. Oh, anyway, oh, so geez. then it becomes a pupa, which is this kind of like the outside of it hardens, just like a kind of chrysalis does with a mm, butterfly, mm-hmm. but less grossly. It's Again, so cute it when it's a butterfly. Feed. I know, it's so cute when it's a butterfly and it's beautiful and flies are just fucking gross. We're yeah. also, remember, we're kind of a little bit designed to see flies that are gross, just like we're designed so to be true. kind of like afraid of spiders and snakes because mm. they're dangerous, right? It's I'm not like, afraid of snakes, but I'm not a fan of spiders. Going to finish up these maggots. So <laughs> maggots and flies and their whole life cycle is very important to know because can be used to date with some accuracy, not to the hour, but often to the day. And sometimes depending on other factors, whether it was daytime or evening of when a person died. So that is very important to do things like establish an alibi. So if someone says I was working all day Thursday, or they say that they were somewhere else, or, you know, they've definitely got an alibi or they don't have an alibi. But if you know when the person was killed, uh, it tells you a lot about where your potential murderer was and if they could have been available to do that crime. So it is important information. And increasingly, this is regarded as pretty accurate dating. It is one of the, the ways that we can accurately date um, the death of a body. But you do have to know what the surrounding environmental factors were that could have sped up or slowed down the, the rate of decomposition and the rate of insect colonization of oh, the corpse. Yes. Christ. Yeah, there's a lot of grossness. But I learned a lot about maggots. <laughs> I'm not as grossed out by them as I used to be. I'm more it, grossed out by them. No, well, here's the thing. They only like dead skin. I mean, yeah. this is why like people can do things with maggots where it's like, if you... This is gross. So shut your ears if you're really grossed out. But like if you have gangrene on your body, there's a therapy where you can have maggots eat it because they're not going to eat your living flesh. Well, it's like leaching, right? Like it's like leaching. They're just going to munch away happily. Apparently it's a really unpleasant sensation to feel maggots chewing on your flesh. I would imagine Um, it wouldn't be great. But yeah, especially when they kind of come up to the edge of the part where it's no longer the decaying part, but actually the living part, you have to kind of pull them out at that point. But like there's applications for everything, man. And their job is to take your body and turn it into more of them. And they do it very well. There was a story from one of the gentlemen, I can't remember his name, unfortunately, who wrote one of the early texts on decomposition and the processes of it and how it happened. And he kind of got inspired, so to speak, when he was, I believe, in Africa and he saw the corpse of an elephant. It was dead a few days. And he said that even though it was dead, it looked like it was alive because it was just writhing. Oh, millions of maggots they were like so wait the maggot people this is the maggot just people. Like, 
got the maggot population just sending out freaking smoke signals to its Dude, friends, like come and totally. party in this elephant with us. Dude, it's like Fire Island, but actually it went well. <laughs> Ew. And they were that? having it's like Burning like, Man. Like Burning Man, but Burning Elephant. Mm. And they just took that thing down. He said that he came back about a week later and all that was left was skeleton. Damn. And that hovering around, oh, mostly skeleton, just a few bits of, of flesh left and hovering around this dead, mostly completely eaten creature was this just thick black cloud of millions of blowflies. Oh my God. Because what had happened was the calories of that elephant had been converted into flies. Literally like almost a one-to-one conversion of like elephant turns into flies. Just like the amount of calories that were converted is just astonishing. And so now all those flies are going to often have little babies of their own. Oh, thank God. That's just what we need are more flies. More fucking flies. More female blowflies to give us fucking millions of maggots. Thanks, guys. Mm -hmm. The elephant really fucked up. Mm -hmm. It wasn't great. Uh, Some flies produce predatory maggots that feed on other maggots. Oh my God. Uh, It's just like, yeah, like I said, it's maggots all the way down. Oh my God. You really went deep on the maggots. (gasps) Oh man. It was, it was really interesting. Like I I try to look at everything as having its place in the cycle of life and, you know, everything's exploited the niches that the world has offered it to find its way in the world. And each species finds its way and, and, you know, develops its fucking two fucking hooks that it uses to shred flesh. And it's like ass breathing spiritual and, it does its job extremely well. Like if you look at a blowfly, if you look at the life cycle, if you look at how it all goes together, it is such a successful creature. It does so, so well. And it takes something that happens constantly, which is death. Yeah. They're like social they, climbers. They really are. <laughs> and they just like eat other people on their way up the ladder. Exactly. Just tearing the flesh away and breathing through their asshole. So that's kind of like an in-depth look at an an aspect of decomposition, a little closer than you might have wanted to get to decomposition. But you know what? That's what you're here for. That's why you come back. Yeah, they're like, that's not actually what we were here for. That's not what we're here for. We didn't sign up for this. Screw you (laughs) and your maggoty talk. Exactly. Well, it's almost Mm -hmm. Halloween. You guys have to get behind it and get with the creepy things. That's right. And this is not a lot less creepier than maggots. No, it isn't. But now that I I take a closer look, you're going to actually zoom us out a little bit and take a little bit of a broader view. Well... It is a broader view. I mean, we we talked about all the decomposition things that we go through and you know how maggots play such a crucial role in that. A critical and 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 you know, honestly quite magnificent. Yes. So. You know, and in a way they are helping because they're like they're sort of, you know, environmentalists in a way if you think about it. Yeah, like the first responders of the They kind of are the first the, responders. Yeah. Well, because when we die, did you know that we still leave a footprint? You and mean the footprint of your actual body and having to get no. rid of it and all those things? Yes, exactly. So just like everybody else, you know, they aren't going to get out of life alive. And so, <laughs> you know, when you have a traditional type of a funeral service, things like embalming and cremation, 
those things all leave a carbon footprint. Yeah. I mean, like it's a beautiful freaking mahogany box. Yeah. That was cut down that literally you're going to be in for two days and then they're going to burn it while you're in it or they're going to put it to the ground where nobody can see it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you are going to fuck the planet up by getting embalmed and you lose. All right. So just let's be clear about that. Um, Also, embalming is just the lamest fucking thing to do. So the the amount of chemicals, well, I'm going to get to that in a second. But, you know, as we die and we are, you know, even just cremated, you know, with the gases and the things that, you know, all of that that goes into the atmosphere, you know, when you put a box in the ground with a human being in it that's been preserved, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just the dumbest, most counterintuitive thing. I can't even... (laughs) Like imagine, like you preserve it to, to put it in the ground. To put it in the ground in where a nobody will see it. Box in a box for eternity. Right. That's like, why do why? we do these things? Really, we're taking up so much real estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about how many people have died, and especially over the last like you know year and a half or more, with everything that's been going on, the amount of bodies that came through after, you know, especially once, you know, COVID really hit and Mm -hmm. we didn't know yet what we were working with. And there were so many people who were dying. You know, we saw a massive influx of people. I mean, I think at this recording, we're at like seven, over 700,000 deaths. So, you know, I mean, imagine these people have all died. What do we do with them? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, refrigerated yeah. trucks, baby. That's but exactly. Like, but there's only so many refrigerated trucks in the world and they're going to yeah. have to like, you can't do that permanently. And they've got to go somewhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, do we cremate them? Do we put them in the ground? Whatever we choose to do, we are fucking up and we are impacting the environment. So no matter what right. we do, we're screwed. Humans are a kind of a little bit of a failed experiment <laughs> I know, we, because exactly. we could do so well with our big brains, but we just... <sighs> Instead, we just we don't do better. No. Just so to come on, people just do better. Like stop being such assholes and like stop making plastic and buying plastic crap. And you know, like we all just need to be better at being human. Like the way that we've put our world together doesn't have to be the way that we put our world together. No, but we all we have could to do different. Of, yeah, we have to just kind of agree on something different. Like everyone, for the most part, almost everybody's in agreement that shit sucks. Oh, yeah, for sure. Why do we keep doing shit that sucks if shit sucks so much? Shit sucks so much. I don't know. Well, the embalming process is actually toxic. And it is. okay. so the embalming process is the process of pumping a chemical cocktail of formaldehyde, phenol, methanol and glycerin into the body through an artery to delay the body's rate of decay. That's the definition. Just for reference. We don't put any of those substances in the lakes or oceans to purify the lakes or oceans. We don't. We don't. You know, it's also thought to give the body, this is my favorite sentence of this whole thing. It's also thought to give the body, mind you, we are talking about a dead body here, to give the body a lifelike appearance Jesus. for public viewing. That is just social denial of the wazoo. We are so good at social denial. And- You know, formaldehyde is, they think it's potentially a carcinogen. And if you are exposed to it, it can kill you. Yeah. (laughs) Is the irony there. So Right. So if you were working at a funeral home or you're an embalmer or, you know, you work in a mortuary, that's some bad news. But it's like if you work with nails, like if you're a nail tech, you know, or you work with hair and you're working with a lot of like big chemicals, like Mm -hmm. 
you got to watch out for the big chemicals. Oh, but for those sure. Are Wear your gloves, people. Amount. Your skin's your biggest organ. So according to an article published in the Berkeley Planning Journal, more than 800,000 gallons of formaldehyde are put oh. into the ground along with dead bodies every year in the United States. That's just the fucking United States. That's insane. Eight. Let me put it into a little more perspective gallons. here. That's enough to fill one and a quarter Olympic sized swimming pools every year. That is that so fucking bad. is what you do when you die. That's what you're doing to our planet. Thanks, and that shit goes into the groundwater, that goes up into plants, yeah. that like <clears throat> it moves through the systems. Like, oh my God. Like, and the thing is too, that we already have a way to essentially be buried. Like go into the ground. We need places where we can put people into the ground. I'm going to get to that like, in a minute. Oh, good. Yes. So also according to the Berkeley Planning Journal, Conventional burials in the United States every year use 30 million board feet of hardwoods, 2,700 tons of copper and bronze, one fuck. Yeah, 104,272 tons of steel, and 1,636,000 tons of reinforced concrete. And even better. Get ready for this. The amount of casket wood alone is equivalent to about 4 million acres of forest and could build about 4.5 million homes. Are you shitting me? That's I, a year? I mean, according to this journal. No, I believe it's yeah. true, dude. How deeply wasteful it giving that it's a one-use item. One-use item that is seen for a very short period of time and then is buried forever, hopefully buried forever. And it is a marker of denial of death in our culture. Right. And the inability to deal with death in a healthy way that we need to go through these processes of making people look lifelike, making people look like they're being, you know, buried in these like comfortable like mm. it's a dead person they don't give a fuck about comfort but it is important that it looks comfortable to people's psyches into their hearts and yeah, minds because they want to make sure that and i think well i'm going to get into this in a minute you know they want to make sure that the memory of their loved one is it, it's kind of like they get upsold through guilt in addition to how much we put into the ground the other thing with these cemeteries is that you know we waste a lot of water by keeping them green right mm -hmm. i mean if you look at a cemetery like that's a lot of green to keep up with also funerals are fucking expensive yeah they really are like i think the average is around ten thousand dollars that's a lot of money it is a lot of money and it's money that most people don't have and it doesn't oh, yeah. have to be you can opt out and do something different as long as you and your loved one who died are on the same page about yeah. it, like have a pizza party where they all, you all get together and drunkenly share your favorite memory of your friend. I want you to tell you the dumbest together. stories possible and laugh and talk about like who I was as a person and enjoy right, and the talk trash and talk love and all those good things. Yeah. Like, that's how it should be. Exactly. My hatred yeah. of the mock E, you know I mean? That could be a whole like, you know, that's just a whole speech right there. It's a whole speech right there. That might have to be funeral part two. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. We mm -hmm. could definitely make it a multi-day event yeah. with one day dedicated just to that. It's like Burning Man. 
Exactly. <laughs> and at the end, we just like burn your burn your corpse on exactly. like a pyre oh. in the middle of like a river. Okay. That'd be cool. Yeah, well, I know. my final wishes do include a Viking funeral. So illegal. You are my second friend who has requested what? a Viking funeral. What? Who is yeah. this other person and how uh, dare my they? My friend has requested a, a Viking funeral <laughs> burned on a pyre. At one point, it was meant to be a pyre in the middle of like a, a, a lake or something that a flaming arrow was shot to. Yeah, that's what I want. But here's the thing about that. It's super anticlimactic if the person who's shooting the arrow keeps missing. <laughs> well, that's why like, we have to have somebody with excellent aim. Yeah, because if it's like everyone's like, oh, uh, there she goes. Here comes the arrow. Oh, God, I'm going to miss her so much. Pew. Pew. <laughs> Like, it's just going to keep, like, it keeps landing short. It keeps going into the water. Yeah. You're floating further That's away. True. There's, like, a, maybe a wake happening. Like, maybe there's, like, a boat happening. A boat goes past, maybe yeah. tips you over. The logs roll <laughs> off. You fall into the water. That, like, would, that would be how it would go down for me. You just kind of slowly wash back onto the shore. Yeah, exactly. You've got to try uh, again tomorrow once I dry out again. Once you dry out again. <laughs> and a little, like, natron, like the ancient Egyptians. Oh, yes, anybody got the yeah, natron, man. make sure you bring it. I mean, that's smart. That's just good yeah. planning. Well, the funeral industry does uh, bury about 2 million-ish people a year, according to this article, which is a profit of close to 15 billion. Oh, there's a lot of money in death. But they say that there isn't, you know, I'm like, no, but that's a lot of money. That's a, that's big. That's big. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, cremation, really not that much better. I mean, I guess if you're burned and you kind of like end up in a, in an urn, it's not so bad, but it does release chemicals into the atmosphere, which are mm -hmm. things like carbon monoxide, soot, sulfur dioxide, other heavy metals, mercury emissions from dental fillings, apparently. Oh my this is a, ve a very concerning trend of it, Ellie. So, but what is the number one thing that you would want to, I mean, how could you give back to the earth? Be eaten. Well, eco-friendly. food. <laughs> like just be the food to the earth. Be you food took for the so earth. much your whole life from Mother Earth. Can't you just give back one thing? That's you right. You selfish Yourself. little child. Exactly. Well. Give your flesh. Give of your flesh to the it's earth. All the earth asks for is I your know. body is in return. So very much. I, I mean, how dare you? Mm -hmm. It's your mother. <laughs> you you kiss your mother with that mouth? Yeah. <laughs> well, the eco-friendly alternatives that are out there, they include biodegradable casket options like mm -hmm. bamboo, paper. Oh. You can apparently be, you know, I mean, I can just make a little paper airplane and put your body in it. Some big-ass origami right there. Right, yeah. Cardboard, wool, banana leaf, and willow. I can kind of oh, wow. get behind the wool. I can kind yeah. of see the wool. That makes sense. That, that could be really sense. cozy and like tufty. You know, like one of those. It like, is cold um, in the ground. So you do yeah, want to stay It's warm. very cold. Mm -hmm. You want to be toasty. Yeah. But I'm imagining one of those like cute little like uh, cat beds that are like kind of pod shaped with a little hole. Yeah. Like, fel felted. Yeah. But, like with my dead body inside a larger one. <laughs> well, there is still one alternative that's even better, which is the infinity suit, which I... <gasps> Did not know anything about, but I think is really pretty fucking cool. Infinity suit. Yes. It's oh, a, it looks like cozy, comfy jammies and they match and they're cute, but it's a burial suit. It's a biomix of mushroom, mycelium and other microorganisms. And so it's like this suit. And it's like embedded into the in, suit. Mm -hmm, it's like infused inside of it. And so when you're buried in this suit, it 
assists in decomposition and you can just be buried in it. There's also a shroud. It, like, sprouts stuff? Yeah. <gasps> Apparently so. I'm not really exactly positive how the whole thing works, you know, but it's a cute onesie is pretty epic. I really am kind of they, they also if you don't like the jammy look, you have the choice of a shroud type situation. Oh, they like wrap you up. Yeah. Like yeah. Jesus style. It's basically I mean, it's a biodegradable suit that just assists with decomposition and it sort of returns the remains into nutrients that return to the earth, which is cool. Infinity suit, it recycles you back into the infinite cycle of life. Exactly. And also, too, a steal for $1,500. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. I think you pronounce this coeo.com. It's C-O-E-I-O.com. If you think about, like, obviously dying is an uncomfortable subject and it's not mm-hmm. something that we enjoy thinking of, although we kind of do around here. We're a little on the strange side, though. Yes, so we kind that. of are. But... If you have to die, which you do, it's kind of comforting in a really weird way to think about not being committed to a box and not being eternally buried six feet underground in the cold forever Mm -hmm. in the dark. Like that is to me, that is very scary sounding. And to me, too. Yeah. And so like and death is scary. But when you think about like that, there's an option like this and that you just get buried in it, you kind of return back to the earth. Like that's actually pretty kind of cool. I mean, other people I've heard other people say they want to be turned into a diamond. I don't really know that process of becoming a diamond, although I do think that's kind of cool. If it's being squashed infinitely, that would be hilarious. Like I'm just imagining kind of like a Star Wars, the scene where they're in the, the oh, garbage compressor. Yes, where it's just the walls yeah. are closing in. The clothes are being, but it keeps going until you become a diamond. I mean, whatever the process is, apparently you could do it. So that's that's pretty cool. So with all of that, I have a couple of fun facts. How could you not have fun facts? I mean, it's really decomposition. There was so much to choose from. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna just jump into it. Luke Perry. <gasps> was buried in an eco-friendly mushroom soup. (laughs) Not soup. (laughs) It's probably is by now. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to start that one all over again. I don't know. I think we should keep it. Okay, keep going. (laughs) I'm going to jump right into this. Luke Perry was buried in an eco-friendly mushroom suit. Whoa. How cool is that? That's awesome. Yes. I mean, not cool that Luke Perry died because obviously oh, that was super Luke sad. Perry. Yes. But he was into the ideal. I guess he had contacted that company that I was talking about earlier way before his death and had mm-hmm. inquired about it. He had found out about it. He was very progressive, apparently. He found out about this and he totally inquired about it. And when he passed away, yeah, he was buried in a mushroom suit. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Yeah. I'm going to totally look into that. It's very, between that and the um, the the body farm, I feel like I've got some really good options. Oh, we have some great options. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. okay. All right. I can wrap my head around this. At the body farm, after the remains are removed, there's a silhouette <gasps> in the ground where it's bare. Like it's bald. The ground is bald from where this body had once been. Because like, all of the stuff that leaked out of the body is like killed everything underneath it? Or like, you know how if you just have something on some grass and it can't yeah. grow because yeah, it doesn't yeah. get sunlight or whatever, whatever the case is, it's this bare silhouette of this body. But after some time, 
when the grass or the plants come back, they come back thicker, taller, and greener. And we all know why. Yeah. So the next time you're walking past something that's extra lush, maybe there is a decomposing body there. Thanks, Jeff. Yay. I mean, you know, I mean, look, you know, I mean, if you're like, wow, look at that meadow. It's just so full and lush and that grass is beautiful. Well, you know, there could have been many bodies. But like, that is an excellent point. Like anytime you see something lush, it it is absolutely because. Why is it more lush than the other thing? Right. Because there's more nutrients. Why are there more nutrients there? Yes. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Just stew on it. I had some friends and we had this joke that they had um, this really nice little backyard veggie garden. And there was a year, it's like the second year they had the veggie garden where the tomatoes were like ungodly. It was like, oh no, they, they had to like proper, there was like, when you looked at the plants from a distance, they looked red because oh. there were like more tomatoes than leaves. It was insane. That is and my we, nightmare because I hate tomatoes. I hate tomatoes, don't I? Like people are like, oh, we should grow tomatoes in this garden. I'm like, why? So I can put them directly in the compost. Yeah, uh, why? Why would I grow the devil's fruit? Right, exactly. When I can just like poke myself in the balls to begin with and exactly. just do something horrible to myself. It, yeah. Yeah. But in any case, um, yeah, we joked that they, they had put a dead body under there and that's why it was growing so well. But there's a little bit of truth to that joke. Okay. And so- in 2018, mm-hmm. for those of us who enjoy a good thrift haul. I love a good thrift haul. Oh, and you know, that's true. Well, I, <laughs> I do know that that's true. That was very creepy. Yeah. <laughs> a woman in Missouri bought an urn and it had the previous occupant's <laughs> photo on it. Oh. And I guess this woman had lost her son a few years before. And so she was hoping to put his remains in this urn. And mm. there were ashes when they went to go and open it. Oh, dear. And it was the woman was still in there. So her ashes had accidentally been donated to this thrift store. Oh, no. Apparently, there's quite this is a phenomenon. This really? is a thing. Yeah. When I looked up, Earn like, uh, how did I, I think I put in my search. It was like urns in thrift stores with ashes. I was like something like that. Yeah. Quite a few stories popped up. You know, I can totally imagine what happens, right? Oh, for somebody, sure. Somebody's got, somebody's got like their urn of, of like their sister or their uncle or their aunt or their parents or something in their house. And then they die. Yeah. And then their asshole son comes back to wherever you are and he's like, I don't know this shit. Just let's just put it, give it all to goodwill. Exactly. Right? Trevor just and boxes this shit up and gets on with his Trevor. life. Ever. Yeah. He doesn't <laughs> even look in the fucking thing. and like, oh, this could be, he's like, I don't know what this thing is. is why is it so heavy? I don't know why it's so uh, heavy. Uh, uh, why is the picture on the outside? I don't know. And he doesn't even look. He doesn't even realize there's like ashes of dead people in there and he puts it in there. It goes to goodwill and mm-hmm. they're just like, I don't know. Decorative ash. It's interesting because I think one of my first thoughts would have been, well, first of all, if, if that was me, I, most likely wouldn't buy a, an urn from a thrift store just knowing that no, it was previously. No, in general, it's like buying underwear from a thrift store. There's yeah. just some things yeah. you don't You got to have that new. Store. You got to have yeah. that new. Gotta I would probably new. would have questioned the weight of it. I think I would have been like, why does this seem heavier than it should? But that's just me. Anyway, it it was a really kind of a cool story because when they realized that the ashes were ashes, they were like, what do we do? Like, do we scatter them? Like, what? 
exactly do we do with who is this person? And yeah, so like somebody's earthly remains. It's yes. A big deal. And so uh, thankfully the woman who bought it, her daughter was like, I'm just going to check out and go on Facebook. So she had put something out there on Facebook, like, Hey, like bought this urn seems to be some remains in it. And somebody replied back and really? it turns out it was this, it was an accidental donation and, the woman oh. who I guess rightly owned the ashes was able to get them back. It was her mother. Oh, that's a nice story that ended well. Yeah. 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 So, I think we needed that to kind of tie a little bow on this whole situation. It, it really kind of needed to round out with some positivity. But my favorite thing is, and I don't know, this doesn't totally have to do with decomposition, but it does have to do with the uh, amount of room in cemetery. You know, mm. Nicholas Cage. <laughs> It's one of my favorite worst actors of all time. He's the best worst. He's the best worst actor ever. You know, he has his tomb already purchased in New mm-hmm. Orleans in the shape of a pyramid. <gasps> That's epic. <laughs> and uh, I have visited this tomb. You shut your mouth. I have a fucking picture in front of this tomb. Please, can you like? I will find it and send it to you. No, no, I, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna need you to like get a copy of it or send it to me and I will have it professionally printed out and get it framed. Oh my God. But who is this person? You'll be like, oh, that's Kita. That's cool. That's Kita in front of Nicholas Cage's <laughs> empty tomb. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, uh, we definitely have some pictures in front of his tomb. And, and you know, Nicholas Cage is definitely weird, man. He's got some, he's got some shit going on. I mean, he's got what, like shrunken heads and like his own private island. I mean, he's just, yeah. I mean, yeah. Shrunken pygmy heads. I read that he has a a fucking pet octopus. (gasps) That's actually makes him cooler. I mean, only if he's killed by the octopus and then goes in his pyramid tomb. In which case I would expect that the octopus would sacrifice itself and opt to be buried. You would expect so in the style of the Kings of old, (laughs) you go down with the ship. That's right. I mean, put the octopus over Nick Cage and just let it, let the two decompose together. Yes, there you have it, friends. That was a decomposition and our little dive into it. And we hope you enjoyed learning. I learned a lot of things. Some I, did I didn't want to know. Some I was fascinated to learn. Yeah. I didn't know that, you, that they were sort of defined by stages, like that the process was defined by stages. I didn't know all this stuff about maggots. Oh, yeah. I was just starting to forget. I know, and I'm going to keep remembering and reminding you. So that I'm going to start getting continues. random texts from you. It's just like a picture of a maggot in various growth stages, or just like hooks. Yeah, <laughs> gross. Or like chomp, chomp, chomp. Oh, yeah. it's disgusting and horrible. I know. That's why I'm here. Decomposition is the most natural thing in the world. In fact, it's an essential part of the cycle of life. The nutrients from decomposing remains of animals, plants, bacteria, and fungi break down into their component parts in the process of decay, through ingestion by other creatures, and from exposure to the elements. The stuff we're made up of becomes the food of creatures large, small, and minuscule, Our flesh is devoured by waves of creatures who in turn nourish animals and plants, who in turn nourish us, which drives the entire human endeavor. Without decomposition, life cannot exist. Nutrients are not recycled back into the chain of life, 
everything withers and dies without death and decay. That doesn't mean it's not gross as shit, because it is. It's also fascinating and compelling because it forces us to face the fact that biologically, we're made of meat. Like the meat we eat, like roadkill. The same thing that happens to a dead animal happens to us. Foxes and maggots and spiders and falling apart, the whole shebang. It can be disturbing to face the fact that this meat machine that our big brains drive around will someday be dead and our body will need to be taken care of by someone else as it flops around and starts to fall apart as dead things do. For most of us, decomposition and the sights and sounds and smells it creates are a deal breaker and not even one of our own choice. The average schmuck like you and me cannot stomach the real deal the pieces, the parts, the muck, and the oozing decay laid out on the autopsy table, reeking and writhing with the various insect colonizers of dead things. I find decomposition fascinating, but from afar. I salute those brave souls with stronger stomachs than mine, those adventurers who go spelunking in rotten human corpses to find a cause of death. I admire the grad students and researchers who spend hours in the field, nose to nose with decaying people, patiently observing and collecting data, sometimes for years on end. This kind of work is the meat and potatoes of the scientific method, and it is mundane, gruesome, often very boring work. It has also revealed an enormous amount about how we decompose. Through this work, justice becomes harder to avoid. And as the many allied fields that inform our understanding of human decay broaden and share this knowledge with each other, they continue to make it more difficult for killers to get away with it. That's a noble pursuit, and in the right company, makes for killer dinner table conversation. You've been listening to Homicide Worldwide. Isn't that the uh, Mufasa? Wait, no, is that the Lion King? (laughs) (laughs) Circle of life. Exactly. Better take that out. No, he's going to keep that the fuck in. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. Um, (laughs) 12.50 is when that happened. And that time I know. That was glorious. Yes. Exactly. Like, I, like I make it like a photo of me. You know how there's like you sent an elegant photo. <laughs> but with a tire and, around your yeah, face. A flaming tire. <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh, God. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I don't want you to die before me. I think we oh need to go God. out together like we've always planned. But yeah, um, yeah. if it should happen, I will 1 million percent make sure that that happens. Okay, please do. Please do. <laughs> and please make sure that I, somehow I'm eaten by a shark. I think <laughs> At honestly, the same time. The, the funniest way that I could possibly go. Oh All my right. God. So now 